This is Midlife Whatever. Today I'm talking to my friend Monica. Monica and I met at very delicate times in our lives. Both of us were newly postpartum and wondering, what the hell do I do now? Usually I have a fantastic memory, but my severe postpartum depression prevented me from making too many concrete memories during my time in Portland. However, I do remember Monica. Her hilarious, quick-witted nature drew me in and kept me there. Over the years, we've kept in touch and recently have been each other's support systems through neurodivergent diagnoses and spousal separations. So, hey, Monica, my preferred pronouns are she, her. Could you please tell me your preferred pronouns? Hi, Kelly. I prefer she, her, but I am not offended by they. Excellent. Excellent. So, Monica, I'd like to tell the listener and or listeners, if there's more than one out there, um, Monica and I have bonded over so many things recently. Um, mm-hmm. One is our spousal separations, which we won't get into too much detail about on this episode. But the other one has been the fact that both of us have been diagnosed as neurodivergent in this midlife. And for those of you who don't know what neurodivergent means, it's basically whenever your neurology and your sensory system process things differently than a quote typical neurotypical person. So this can include things like ADHD, autism, dyslexia, dysgraphia, sensory processing disorder, and even depression, anxiety, some mental health disorders also can be considered neurodivergencies. So how old are you? First of all, let's, let's, I just, I just turned, I just turned 44 about a month, uh, about two weeks ago. Huzzah. And (laughs) what is your neurodivergency? Um, I recently just in December of 2021 received an ADHD diagnosis. So how did that, how did that happen? Like what, what led to that? Well, in, oh, let's see. How did that? (laughs) You can go back to, and nothing is off the table. Like if you're like, I was so fucking crazed and disorganized, (laughs) or you were like, I couldn't remember anything, whatever you want to say. Well, um, you know, I'd always kind of suspected that I had some sort of, um, I don't, I don't know if learning difference, you know, when I was in, uh, college, but my basis for what learning differences looked like was my older sister, who um, and my younger brother. My older sister was is um, was diagnosed with ADHD when she was in early college, and her ADHD impacted her significantly. Like she practically dropped out of college. My younger brother um, is profoundly dyslexic, and they and I always compared myself to them to how impacted they were by their diagnosis. And I, and I just always thought that's, I don't because I'm not them and I don't present it like that. So I never explored it. And, um, and, you know, I, I am on the kind of milder side of ADHD or so the psychiatrist said, but I did develop some pretty good coping mechanisms and, strategies over the years, um, but often found that they would fall by the wayside. I wouldn't keep up with them. They became exhausting to Mm -hmm. do and I would get burned out on them quickly and then would sort of fall apart and then get this 
surge of excitement uh, over something and I'd kind of reorganize myself and then it would fall apart. And, and then I had kids and my oldest was diagnosed with ADHD quite young. And then we just kind of, that was just sort of life was how do we support him? And then I was reading an article sometime during the pandemic and it's something along the headlines of five things you might want to consider doing after your child is diagnosed with ADHD. And I think the number one <laughs> was consider being assessed yourself. Mm. And I was like this massive light bulb went off and I'm like, oh, like maybe I, maybe I really do have ADHD. So I kind of sat on it for a little while and as I started exploring what ADHD looks like in adults, particularly female adults, I realized, wow, I fit a lot of this criteria. So I sort of self-diagnosed and then I thought, you know, I wouldn't mind trying medication, um, but I obviously needed to get a prescription from a doctor. So I phoned up my local hospital and they have a pretty great ADHD program, got hooked up with a psychiatrist and um, that was kind of it. What did your, so I have a question about your, Mm -hmm. the burnout phases. So what did, what did that look like? Because I know for me, when I would have autistic burnout, it usually started with a meltdown, a public facing meltdown that would look like a temper tantrum to the untrained eye, including myself. I know it's different Mm -hmm. for every neurodivergency, but there's a few times where I had, I just recall having these sudden temper tantrums for lack of a better word, but I didn't know why I was having them and I felt ridiculous, but I couldn't control it. So what did it look like for you? And that told me I was about to go into burnout where I just couldn't function. So totally. What would that look like for you? Um, I would say that, you know, I developed like a system or a strategy to manage something in my life, like grocery shopping, Mm -hmm. right? Or, or keeping up with maintenance on the house. And so we're cleaning. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Oh my God. Cleaning. Fuck. Hire someone. (laughs) That's my (laughs) cupping strategy. And, 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 and as I would develop these strategies, it it felt really good. I, I, I'm a problem solver by nature. I love to be in problem solving mode. I'm not really one to sit in and oh no, what was what was the situation? I just so I would develop these strategies and as I would implement them at first I had a lot of you know, dopamine around it. I was really excited to do it. And um and as it went on, my overwhelm and burnout looked like anxiety. Um, it would, you know, all of a sudden it was like, oh, every day I'm supposed to do this, this, and this, and this in order to maintain the status quo of what I've set up because I want to, you know, have my house clean uh, or, you know, clean house or whatever it is. And um, meal planning, mm-hmm. <laughs> just uh, <laughs> living and just, you just, you, like, know. What, you know, I understand the meal planning because we, I wanted to keep it consistent. And then after like a month of it, I was just like, Oh, this is so hard. <laughs> Can I just go to the grocery store and buy whatever I want? Yeah. Make something that like, kind of goes with this stuff. <laughs> yeah. Can't the whole um, family just have tuna and like a side of mescaline mix like every night? <laughs> 
getting another rotisserie chicken tonight. Yes. It's fine. We're having charcuterie again. <laughs> again. Um, and and as the as those um, as those tasks would sort of build up that I wasn't attending to, um, mostly because of executive functioning. Oh, what's the word? St- stunted <laughs> executive functioning skills. Um, I would then, yeah, I would feel really overwhelmed. And the, the that feeling of, I don't have any control in this situation. There's too much going on. I have too much to do. I'm supposed to do all of this. Um, a lot of it was expectations that I'd put on myself, but I, you know, and then it would just be like freeze mode. I got nothing. I can't, I can't meal plan. I can't cook anything. I can't, you know, um, and then, and then it would all fall apart and, it would sort of look like depression. And then I, you know, something would sort of rouse me again. And I'm snapping out of this, I gotta, you know, I, I would find a new interest, mm-hmm. you know, or a new way of meal planning or this, you know, this new cleaning schedule or whatever it was. And then the cycle would repeat again. Um, so listeners, if you are not aware, ADHD, there's so many mis- cultural misnomers about it, especially with women, but people with ADHD, um, can get what's called hyperfixation. So it doesn't, so if you are really interested in a project or a task or something, you can be hyper-focused on it for hours at a time. And so people might think, oh, but I can focus on my my work task or this book for eight hours, you know, I don't have ADHD, but that's not necessarily the case. Nope. So, nope. Yes. So, and, and then the hyperfixation can give you the dopamine hits, right? That you mm-hmm. need. So, that was, yeah, that was, um, yeah, definitely anxiety. I would get very overwhelmed and, and then and end up in freeze mode. So how did that affect, we're going to get to some juicy questions. How did that affect your parenting? (laughs) (laughs) We're going to go right in there. (laughs) Uh, I can edit this out if you want. Yeah, no, it's totally fine. Um, How didn't it affect my parenting? Um, It was, it it became um, a real big cyclical thing between um, wanting to perform and not being able to perform as a parent and that, that, that big tension between wanting to and, and not being able to um, created um, a lot of internal turmoil, um, you know, messages that I was sending myself of you're not a good parent, can't get your shit together, um, you know, and, and, and in the anxiety, just the, the shortness that I would have with my kids, you know, it impacted my, the, the early relationship that I had with my kids and, um, relationship, closer relationships that I had, um, you know, with, with my, I don't know, how do you call somebody who's your, not co- quite your co-parent, <laughs> co-parent, but he was my husband at the time. Um, and a lot of, um, internal messaging of I'm lazy, mm-hmm. not smart enough. Yep. yep. Um, this is my fault. Um, you know, I, I, a comparison with other parents and moms, um, look at them, they can work. And I should mention, I was a stay at home mom. Um, you know, look, they can work and take care of their kids 
and go to the farmer's market and run that 5k. And, and I'm like, and I've been sitting in my house all day trying to figure out how the fuck to get. Sorry, can we cuss here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is an, <laughs> N- you should do the other episodes. We're totally NSFW and we dive deep into, into yeah. the Yeah, shoes. so how the fuck are they doing all of this and I'm just like stuck in the mud? Like how am yes. I just stuck? And um, so I definitely created a lot of thought patterns around unworthiness and, I'm just not equipped. I'm just not an equipped human to handle parenthood, um, which isn't true. Not true at all, listener. <laughs> Monica is all. an excellent parent. And she, I should mention that she is one of the mothers in Portland that I saw. I think I saw the most frequently when our babies were babies. And um, I was always in awe of her. Her uh, uh, the appearance of having her shit together, but she was <laughs> always very quick witted. So I find that has been the biggest one of the biggest challenges for me is my son was also diagnosed. So like you, my son, like your situation, but different neurodivergency. My son was diagnosed with autism, and after that, I thought, oh my god! I throughout this whole time, my parents had been saying, Kelly, you were just like him. You were just like him. He's just like you. Da, 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 da. And I'm like, and I can tick all these boxes. So maybe I should get evaluated for autism. And whilst there's no medication I can take or anything else like that, there are like therapy, there's therapy and there's different things that I I've later learned about it that have helped me manage the sensory system. Mm -hmm. It's just nice to have an explanation to know that we're not total fuck ups and our, our neurology is just wired differently than other people's. Yeah. The awareness around it. When I find myself in the thought pattern of I'm fucking this up and, and then I think, Oh, wait a minute. This is an ADHD symptom this is just that my brain it works differently mm-hmm. than what I have been thinking for 40 years that my brain was more neurotypical and it isn't. And so just the awareness and the acceptance around it, uh, it's been, yeah, it's, it's, it definitely brings about a lot more self-compassion and understanding of myself and, and others who are neurodivergent. particularly my son, you know, Mm -hmm. I think that even in the last few months, um, just having that awareness uh, has helped him and I connect. He, uh, he's like, you are also ADHD mom. We got like a little club. We, yes. And uh, the same with my son and I, we have our little, he, he, he's like, oh, because we're autistic, this can cause sensory overload. And we have different sensory needs, um, which uh, can be challenging sometimes. I'm very much sensory seeking and he's sensory avoidant. So, mm-hmm. But I'm an adult and I know I can manage mine when he needs silence. Uh, can I talk about, I'll edit this part out if I can't. Can I talk about sobriety and using alcohol? Sure. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, so I know that for me, now in retrospect, that I have not been drinking and I've been in recover in a different recovery program, not AA since December 1st. 
um, that I used alcohol for my dopamine hits and to manage my sensory issues and used it as a major coping mechanism for my neurodivergency. Did you ever find yourself in a situation where you were possibly using alcohol or drugs or anything else in a way that helped soothe or you thought was soothing your ADHD at the time? Yeah, for sure. And I think that when I think about my alcohol use over time, um, you know, I've been so hard. I don't want to call myself like sober. Um, I do occasionally still drink, but I have, um, I no longer consider myself a habitual drinker. Mm -hmm. Um, I did, uh, you know, March of 2020, we all know what happened. Yeah. (laughs) Um, it was like the green flag to just sort of like, you know, ah, oh, you're not driving anywhere. You don't have to be anywhere in the morning. You know, just there was, um, it seemed like that's what most other people were doing yeah. too. So it felt like, okay, we can't be together, but at least we can all be drinking at our houses, you know, at the same time. Yes. So <laughs> it felt like this camaraderie without actually being together. Um, you know, and I just noticed that my alcohol use had gone up, um, and it wasn't, so I should back just a little bit, um, throughout the years, um, my, I need a new word for this. Co-parent, my, I, I, I don't co-parent, know what to say, because I'm a co-parent partner, yeah, partner so, yeah. friend. Uh, my, my kid's dad. <laughs> my baby daddy. <laughs> um, yeah, right. The person I lived with for 16 years. Um, oh, every January we had done dry January, mm-hmm. just as like a, you know, post-holiday, let's just kind of pull the reins back a little um, sleep better, eat better, all that. Anyway, so when I did dry January in January of 2021, for the first time that I had ever done dry January, I had um, a low grade headache and just kind of felt a little fluish for a couple of weeks. And it was a really, it was a really big wake up call mm-hmm. because that to me is, you know, it was it was withdrawal. Mm-hmm. It was the first time that I had ever, I mean, hangovers or withdrawals too, but on a more, you know, sustained, like, whoa, my body is really, was really used to the alcohol that I had been consuming every single yep. day. Yep. And, and it seemed like every, you know, couple few months, like the the two beers weren't doing it anymore. So all of a sudden it was three beers at night. And then all of a sudden it wasn't three beers, it was four beers, you know, and and I was still able to wake up in the morning and function and do online learning with my kids and keep the house clean and go on a walk and hike. And I was still doing my regular life. It was just the evenings were so much more about using alcohol to soothe away all of those all of those things. And it took a while, I want to say it wasn't until like, May or June of 2021, where I wouldn't, my brain had finally uh, altered it, you know, the, the brain the chemistry way yeah. of I, <clears throat> I could really use a drink right now. 
Yeah. Particularly in the evening, particularly if the kids were getting squirrely, particularly around cooking. That was generally the time that I did drink before. And so, um, you know, just learning new coping mechanisms around it. And it's hard. I don't necessarily, uh, maybe I'll insert this here. You know, I, I have a significant amount of trauma in my life. And so, when, when I sort of look at it, you know, I was using alcohol as a way to just soothe my entire mm-hmm. nervous system. But then it was, <laughs> alcohol is not good for your nervous system. Mm-hmm. And then the next morning, I would wake up with that same sort of feeling of dread, I have so much to do. I am totally disorganized, you know, but still functioning, because you have to when you've got kids. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and then at the end of the day, being exhausted, and like, oh, there's this, you know, there's that proof that I can't do things that, you know, I'm disorganized, that I'm lazy. And, but really, my nervous system was just in a chronic state of distress. Unsafety. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This ease. That's, that is a very similar story. And it's interesting, because when I told when I told people, oh, I, I, I quit drinking, they're like, you're not, you don't strike me as an alcoholic. And I was like, well, it, you know, I have what would be classified as alcohol use disorder, but you'd, like you, it was very functional and it was numbing. So in retrospect, looking out through the years, even when I would only drink joyously, going out with friends, um, I was I just remember going out to clubs and parties in Bangkok when we were super social pre-child. And I would get I would feel and love the sensory overload of being out. And then all of a sudden it would turn on a dime. And but I in retrospect, I realized I would drink so that I could keep, so that I could um, self-medicate my nervous system so that I could stay out, still get the sensory seeking that I needed. But once it turned, that I should have left like 30 minutes before that. But because I was drinking, I didn't listen to my body. I couldn't listen to my body. And then later, as I was an adult, and I couldn't, as I was an adult, <laughs> I had a kid. I don't know if that makes me an adult, but <laughs> and I had a kid. I could not moderate my nervous system. I had no idea. You know, I'm trying to help this other little human regulate his own sensory needs. And I'm like, didn't know what the fuck I was doing. So I'm just like, well, my, I'm, I bought into the mom wine culture. And that that was that. And it was so pervasive. And I was like, oh, it's sanctioned. All the moms drink wine. In Portland, you go to breweries with your children. It's mm-hmm. like everybody's doing it. So they have a kid's section at they almost every brewery. Yes. <laughs> literally like telling you play area, come in and drink while your kids go play. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's when I, when I sort of made the conscious effort to, or the conscious decision. Okay. I, you know, I spent two weeks of my dry January shaking off the nine months of you know, more extreme alcohol use than I've really ever, you know, had habitually. Um, I also was cognizant enough that I had used it as a soothing and coping mechanism. And so I, I was really thoughtful, okay, this could easily turn into overeating, emotional eating, over shopping, 
This could easily turn into all the dopamine hits. Right. And so I had to really sit with myself. I had to really learn how to sit with myself. And every time I wanted to reach for a beer, reach for, you know, a, a cookie or, you know, my kids snacks. Oh man. Peanut butter pretzel. Those peanut, those peanut butter pretzel Costco. things. We call them, oh. Yeah, we call them peanut butter pretzel pillows because they look like little pillows. And they're like little <laughs> happy tongue. Like they make your tongue happy like your head is when it lands on a pillow. Yeah, I, but I'm like, oh, well, you know, there's not a whole lot of sugar in here. Like just stuffing my, anyway. And so, it, you know, I, I, it, and when we think, when I think about the way that trauma impacted me, I, I knew that I had to not, like that, that I had to be really aware of where I was turning that mm-hmm. those feelings to was I, I didn't want to turn them to other stuff. And I think that that's, that's where I'm sort of like, I don't, I don't know. I always think is it substance use is that, but it, to me, it's just it, that internal, not, not having that internal connection, mm-hmm. not connection, feeling okay man. with, not feeling okay with myself, mm-hmm. uh, not having resolved my guilt and my shame and, you know, all of those things that ultimately was, you know, showing up and then would seem, oh, I'm going to soothe this with a beer. Yes. I, yes, it 100% does because, <clears throat> During the pandemic, I we experienced a similar trajectory where, mm-hmm. if, you know, the first two weeks we went to the ABC stores, it's called in the South, and stocked up on liquor, which we didn't use. We had rules. So this is how you know you may have an alcohol use issue if you're like, we don't keep liquor in the house. We only drink wine and cider and da, 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 you know. But first two weeks of the pandemic, liquor. So then... Once we realized it was going to last more than two weeks, we're like, okay, we won't, we're not going to drink a Negroni every night <laughs> like we had been, but we still kept the alcohol use up. And at that time during the pandemic, it forced me to sit with my traumas as well because I had mm-hmm. big T trauma and CPTSD. Yep. Um, and I started doing EMDR, which Mm -hmm. for the listener, it's um, an eye movement therapy that's very effective on big T acute traumatic incidences. But one of the issues that they don't tell you about, or they do tell you, but I wasn't, I didn't make the connection, is that once you, something gets cleared out, uh, another one pops up. So if someone told me it's like, okay, you, you called on the kid that raised their hand, you answered their question, they're quiet, the other kid raises their hand. So it's mm-hmm. just, I, I had a difficult time coping with the new memories that would become more clarified once I, I resolved some of the other issues. And so that's where my drinking started started to go mm-hmm. on an uptick and then it went down a downward spiral being disconnected from myself and disconnected from my friends and my spouse. And, yep. and that's interesting. Uh, well, I'm glad you brought up EMDR because that is the, I started EMDR in January of 2020. That's so, yeah. 
Uh, yeah. And, That's and really I also, interesting. Oh my gosh. Because <laughs> I started in June of 2020. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yep. And I, I was resolving a lot, um, but it wasn't really until, um, you know, I want to say March to June ish of 2021 when I really saw breakthroughs in my, in my trauma healing. Mm-hmm. And, and I equate that to being sober mm-hmm. and really being like, oh, I have to, I have to sit with this and I have to just feel that feeling in yeah. there. And it hurts. It does. It sucks to feel those feelings. And then it doesn't. And then it doesn't. <laughs> they are impermanent. You can. Have you heard this? Um, there's. Somebody was saying it, that um, if we actually a- attend to our emotion when we experience it, that it would it will last ninety seconds. So this tracks with everything that I am working on right now. I am, as you know, really in touch with being mindful, with the Buddhist philosophy, with being present, and. Earlier today, I was feeling very irritable because I was editing another episode of the podcast and I accidentally took out five minutes, saved it, and now I have to go back and do it all over again with the master track. And I was just so irritable. And then I just sat with it and I acknowledged it and I let myself be really irritable. <clears throat> and then the relief came. Yeah. And it was, whereas before, if I, I would have just been like, oh, I'm going to suppress this, have a glass of wine, whatever. And it would have just sat in my body stored somewhere. Or just also, you know, in those moments when you can't reach for something, I know that I would turn a lot to self-gaslighting, mm-hmm. um, self-loathing. I'm so stupid. How, why did I fuck up so much? Uh-huh. Yeah. And then it would turn into this just like beating myself up for the rest of the day or those moments. And, um, and then you haven't, you haven't attended to that emotion. I know there's several, you know, very um, enlightened individuals. I can't remember who sort of started this idea. Like when you experience a big emotion, the visualization of um, that they're like at your door and they want to come in and and it's a yucky emotion, right? Maybe shame or fear or guilt or grief, whatever it is. And most of the time we want to just leave them outside because who wants shame yeah. in your house, right? But if you allow them in, invite them for tea, mm-hmm. <laughs> sit them down at your table and let them say what it is they need to say, they go away. Yeah. I mean, they'll show up later when something else comes up, but they, the, that, that emotion just wants to be seen and heard. And I think a lot of this is like, um, sort of intertwining with inner child work, Yeah, right? Like how do we, how do we, and we, we're basically soothing by just listening mm-hmm. to ourselves. Exactly. Oh, I love that. I'm doing inner child work right now in therapy. So it really resonates. It's so good. It's so lovely. And there's, um, I love it at first though. Yeah. Well, so I did 
my therapist. Well, mine was. I mine. Think. Oh, it was awful. So <laughs> yeah. my therapist said, <clears throat> put a photo of yourself at the age we're working on. So this was like six, seven as the wallpaper on your phone and occasionally ask little Kelly what she needs. Oh my God. We're the same. Yes. <laughs> we're the same. Wait, well, no one can see, but what Monica just, Monica has little Monica on her phone. And I only just <laughs> as now wallpaper. as her wallpaper, I only just now took little Kelly off my phone because I, I finally accepted myself. Yeah, it's like really interesting to do that inner child work. And um, my EMDR therapist and I have done a lot of inner child work intertwined with the with EMDR. And um, my my most profound time. Um, so when I was born, like at arrival, um, I was not breathing. I needed to be resuscitated. I was a few weeks early. Um, compromised birth. If um, I was in an incubator for 10 days and thank goodness I was at a world renowned hospital. I was very taken care of. I don't know what my outcome would have been if I had been in maybe a rural hospital or our international hospital. Cause I, my dad worked internationally a lot, but um, I didn't receive a lot of touch. Mm-hmm. in the first 10 days. And I know I carry a, um, a significant amount of attachment mm-hmm. <laughs> um, trauma from that experience. And it was wild. One time I floated back to being born and that experience of not of being alone for so long. And so now when I get feelings of abandonment or rejection, I know that it stems from that time. Mm-hmm. And if I attune to my inner child, I, I, I know the listeners can't see this, but I literally like cradle myself. Mm-hmm. Like I hold like myself, like I would hold a baby almost like my arms. And then I just, think about attuning to little Monica, who was a day old, wishing that she was with mom. Yeah. And not able to do that. I'm getting kind of teary. That's great, though. So but it was, it was so scary. But at the same time, I'm used to it now. Like when I know that I'm being massively triggered in that way I'm like oh this is an abandonment wound like this is this yes. is an attachment wound and I know what to do in this moment now I go take care of two-day-old Monica three-day-old mm-hmm. Monica. you know I hold her hand I pick her up you know I, I take her out of the incubator in my meditations in my mind and and most of the time she just wants to be held and that's it yeah. Oh, that's really beautiful. It's, we have very similar stories. Um, I was born a month or just over a month early. Um, very similarly uh, in the NICU, my lungs weren't developed back in the seventies. Mm-hmm. They had to give you some shot or something for your lungs. Mm-hmm. And like, I don't know, 
This is the seventies. I even called. I called. A, no, I don't care if anyone knows why. I called. I was born at the Stanford Medical Center when I said world renowned, like mm-hmm. literally world renowned hospital. Um, I called them recently. I was like, "Do you keep records?" They don't, unfortunately, because I really wanted to see statute of limitations. Was. That was a long time ago. <laughs> I know the lady was like, "How old are you?" Uh, yeah, we don't keep records that long. <laughs> Um, but you know, it was worth a shot because I yeah. really wanted to have um I just wanted to kind of see like what 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 did what happened from the perspective of the medical community in those in the the, the moments that I was born and the you know um I, I think just more to to help my my visual brain sort of capture what what was going on. I mean the only the only way that I can ex- sort of visualize this is my mom's telling me, mm-hmm. you know, my mom's repro- like, this is what, you know, her storytelling of the situation. So, and that can be really limiting at times, but it, it, I also realize it's really not about the story. It's about the emotion. It's about the feeling. Yes. Yep. The feeling behind the story and it yeah. that stays in your, in your body. Mm-hmm. Um, Speaking of body, we were just talking about it before we started recording. You are amazingly strong and so incredibly fit right now. How did you come to find that as a fitness and strength as a healthy coping mechanism for what for what life throws at you? When my second child was born in March of 2015. Um, It wasn't too long after I um, was really struggling with postpartum anxiety um, and some depression, but the anxiety was like the, it was the top of the iceberg. It was really showing itself. And um, I was just feeling so yucky. I was carrying around I hate the word extra weight, but you know, I, I, it was slowing me down. I wasn't eating that well. Um, and, and I wanted to do something to move my body. There was a CrossFit gym down the street from my house. It was like a 10 minute walk, two minute drive. And I thought, you know what? Like I can't drive halfway across town to some 24 hour gym. I'm not going to drive up the hill to the Pilates studio. I need something that's close. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, there was a lot of fear around going, you know, I think a lot of people equate the CrossFit community with like super fit people. And you think of the CrossFit games and you think of like uh, Rob No, and you think of people vomiting after <laughs> workouts and, and everybody's paleo and testosterone based and everyone's like, you know, like, and sure there's a little bit of that, but um, you know, being in Portland, Oregon, there's also a heavy blanket of um, really great people. Mm-hmm. And um, so anyway, the, the, my, the, the box itself was, really welcoming and compassionate. And I showed up one Saturday morning in September and, um, and I just kind of went to try it out. And the way I felt for like three days afterwards was such a telltale sign that movement was 
really needed in my life. It wasn't this optional thing for me. And so I went back. COVID happened. Um, And then this past September, I was kind of toying with the idea of going back. I had managed, I I resolved my anemia. I was feeling better. And I, I went back and I will say that, you know, when I did it the first time, when I first went to CrossFit, it was more about, oh, I need, this is to manage my anxiety, mm-hmm. right? That was my, that was my major motivator. Um, and then, you know, I dropped some weight and felt better and all that. But going back this time, I had resolved a tremendous amount of trauma. I had been mostly alcohol free for, you know, a year and, and a half or a, almost a full year. Um, and something occurred to me one day because I'd been putting a lot of emotional connection to exercise, Mm -hmm. right? I was like, oh my gosh, what if I fail? Oh goodness. What if I, it's going to be hard and I'm going to look like an idiot and, you know, people have been going since, uh, you know, forever and I'm going to look foolish and I'm going to feel dumb and feel inadequate. And then it occurred to me one day, I am putting so much emotion to something that doesn't need emotion. Mm-hmm. Moving our bodies, and I know this sounds a little ableist, but moving our bodies shouldn't be an emotional thing. Correct. It just be part of what we do. And we're not taught that culturally. You know, it's not, my parents didn't didn't do a whole lot of exercising. I didn't see my parents exercising a whole lot when I was growing up. My dad used to do hash runs, but you know, that's like, yeah, that's like a reason to drink. Running and drinking. (laughs) So Monica is a third culture kid, everybody. And a lot of my friends are expats or were expats. So everyone, a lot of people listening know that hash (laughs) runs are just so you can run and drink beer. (laughs) Exactly. So, um, um, you know, I think it just, I just accepted that I needed to have movement in my life. Mm-hmm. And I, I think removing the emotion from it really helped me overcome any fear yeah. about going back and, and fear that I was going to be weaker than before or fear that somebody was going to be more fit than me or do more reps or whatever. It's like, this is my journey. This is about me. This is about staying healthy Um, and both of my grandmothers (laughs) lived to be in their nineties. And so genetically speaking, I'm going to be here a long time Yeah, and I want to be here a long time. I want to see my kids grow up. I want to see if they have kids. I want to see my grandkids. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to see what happens. I know life is a shit show and I'm also really curious how are we going to do this? How are we going to make it through all of this as humans? Because as humans, we've managed to survive for how long now? Yeah. Right? Like there is a great story there. I want to be part of it. I, you know, it's, I love that you say that. I was just having a conversation with my friend about, she was saying the same thing, how her, her grandparents lived a long time until their early 90s. My once the alcoholic side of my family did not live very long. They lived into their 60s. Ergo, one reason to not drink. But my other side, 
my Nana and Papa lived to the mid and late 80s. They never drank. And they, they lived very long lives. And they had their mental faculties until the day they died. And I just think, well, this is a form of self-care because this exercising for me is like you is critical to managing my anxiety. It's critical for me to be able to sleep through the night. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, so you had mentioned earlier that, uh, you were on, now you have medication for your ADHD. Can oh, yeah. you tell us? Mm-hmm. So there's a few things around it. One, I'd like to discuss the, there seems to be a stigma for children to be on it, but not for adults as far as I, or maybe there is, I don't know. So could you talk a little bit about what was the determining factor for you to get on the medication and then how it makes you feel, how it's changed your life. And- so um, I, I, for one, I had to really check my own bias on medication. Um, I had to do a lot of education. I listened to people in the community who um, are or have been medicated. Um, and I think, yeah, I think I, prior to my own diagnosis, and even more so prior to my son's diagnosis, um, I did have a lot of like really um, negative messaging around medication and like, I can't believe they, you know, need, they think they need a pharmaceutical to function. And, you know, it was, um, yeah, I had to do a lot of checking of myself and, you know, education was really the pivotal part for me. And, you know, as a parent, I, I, I think when we, for me, let's see, I've been on Adderall for about a month now and I'm starting to talk about it more openly with my kids. Like, I'm sorry, all the kitchen cabinets are open. Mom's meds are <laughs> clearly wearing off right now. That's like a total sign for me. I forget to close the cabinets. um and they're like oh what do you what do you mean your medication you know and because they think of medicine as like you you have a cold yeah or like I have a headache let me take some Tylenol or growing pains and so I've started to just openly talk about my experience with with um with Adderall and so you know and I, I can see my son's kind of like oh you're using medicine to help with your ADHD symptoms. And so, you know, I think that if he was in the classroom and he was starting to struggle with accessing educational content, I would have accelerated conversations with him, but that's not where we are Mm -hmm. right now. And so I, I would love for him to know that it's there, know what it does, know what it could possibly help with, and then say, Hey, that's something that I'm interested in too for myself. Um, that's really great modeling. I'm just throwing out there. It's good modeling and to be open with your, with your kids about that. Um, so I, I applaud you. Thanks. And, um, so yeah, you know, and I don't know why we have, I mean, and I wonder if that's why there's just so much stigma around it because there is this sort of 
cultural messaging that then we're controlling kids and, you know, turning them into zombies and, um, you know, and, and as a former educator, um, I saw many kids who were on medications and I don't ever remember any zombies. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I, I didn't. And, and so I think that, and if there, and if there were signs that a child was on the wrong medication, then I think that as an educator, you know, just having an open conversation with with parents about hey this is what I'm noticing in the classroom with your child during these times and um, you know messing uh, altering messing with dosage or whatever it is that they need to or, or totally different medication I know there's a lot of messaging out there that it's cultural Americans are really you know over like hyper obsessed with it and um, as an, an excuse, quote unquote, for beha- for certain behaviors, and um, and so I think that if you don't really believe that neurodivergence is a, a differencing in in your brain wiring and your brain chemistry, you're going to maybe look at medication as why do you need it for something mm-hmm. that you don't really have that isn't mm-hmm. really real and you're just lazy and yeah. you know, you need to stop making excuses for being lazy uh, or lazy. motivated or. Oh. Yeah. yeah. That's the thing that really frustrates me about neurodivergence uh, labeling from neurotypical people is, and even my, like yourself, right? Because Growing up, it was always, I was always told, you don't apply yourself. You don't try hard enough. And I'm just thinking, but when I'm sitting in that classroom, the fluorescent lights, and I can just hear this hum constantly. And it feels like the lights are literally weights pushing on my eyelids and I can't and you, focus because I just you feel can so- hear the kid whose knee. Yes. Restless well, leg then I had my, click, my, click, click the pen and the- my stimming would be the bouncy. I was the bouncy knee kid and I was the chair rocker, which I'm now learning was a stim. And so all these things I would get in trouble for or talking um, because autistic people process la- out loud and we are very direct name on the board. And so we were the ADHD girls, especially were punished because the boys were too, let's be honest, but at least yeah. back then they could get a diagnosis, but we were punished for things we just could not help. And it was, uh, it's very difficult. Where's I going with that? Speaking of ADHD. <laughs> well, we were talking about meds and, but I'm happily medicated. At this point. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I've been on and off for um, depression and whenever I need it, it's like, uh, it's like a relief. Yeah. <laughs> if you need yeah. it and you get on it, it really is like a, any type of yeah. mind altering um, prescribed medication is like truly a relief. And it's so funny because uh, at one point I had a family member say, well, isn't Adderall like a controlled substance or, you know, isn't it addictive? Like if it was that addictive, I wouldn't forget to take it. <laughs> yeah. To take it. <laughs> that's kind of this hilarious ADHD thing where you're like, uh, if I don't, it's like that catch 22. It's like, if I don't have it, I forget to take it. <laughs> yes. Which, yeah. Yeah. Have you seen, I would love to tell the listeners and anyone else watching, have you watched Human Resources on Netflix? Mm -mm. It's like inside out for adults. 
So it's, um, it addresses issues of shame. It's basically has all of your emotions represented in caricature form in a cartoon. It's definitely not for kids, Um, but it's, I love it. Literally it's inside out for adults. So I highly recommend watching it. Um, Yeah. Well, Monica, this has been a wonderful conversation. Goodness. I can't believe we are done. (laughs) Yeah. It's been like over an hour. It went by super fast. Is there anything else you'd like to tell the listener or share before we say goodbye? Um, just that, I don't know, that, you know, neurodivergent people are everywhere. Mm -hmm. And, um, if you find that you all of a sudden your friends are like, Oh, I just got an ADHD diagnosis or I was just diagnosed with dyslexia or autism or whatever. You might want to consider whether you fall in that category too, because I've noticed is birds of a feather flock together and I see it over and over and over. Um, I just had a friend go, Oh my gosh, I think I need to talk to my doctor. I think I'm, you know, ADHD. And I'm like, I just got diagnosed. And she looked at me and was like, that solidifies even more that I think that I have ADHD because we are so similar. It's also something I love. And I, I'd love to talk on another episode about this is when you meet someone before you even hear words come out of their mouth, you have a, and you, you're like, I like this person and I don't know why you either have a a connection of neurodivergence, a connection of similarly shared traumatic histories, mm-hmm. um, a connection of shared life experiences, and somehow our subconsciouses, our subconscious minds are talking to each other, yeah. even though we haven't even said too many words yet. And I really, I got to explore that in another episode because I love, love that, especially after my yeah. recent retreat experience. So yeah. Anyway, it was fun. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you so much. And I love you, woman. And it's been. This is a new segment called Listener Don't. I don't care. One of the big themes that came out of Monica's episode was the idea of introspection at this stage in our lives. Monica and I both sat with ourselves after discovering that our sons were neurodivergent and reflected upon the realities of our own neurodivergencies and sought diagnosis for them. We also both sat with the realization that we used alcohol as a numbing agent. And I truly believe that both of us didn't believe we were good enough. As a matter of fact, I know we both think that from conversations I've had with Monica outside of this podcast. We both grew up believing that we were not enough and nothing we ever did was enough. So we we would strive and overstretch and overtax ourselves to give the facade of being enough, to put out that image Look at me, I'm enough. I'm more than enough. I can keep up with you, whether it's materialistically or on social media or academically or how all the activities that our children are in, we just wanted to be enough. And the reality is 
we were already enough. You are already enough. And something to think about is where are you feeling like you are not enough? Maybe examine why and where that comes from. Because you, just as you are, you are wonderful at your core. I mean, unless you're a total asshole and then you just suck. But most of you are truly exactly wonderful where you are right now. And I don't think we get that message enough. (laughs) We do not get that message enough. And a lot of times it comes from our childhood. Um, And I know that's a difficult reality to face. But now that I've been doing this work on myself, I can see how other parents are raising their kids in a fashion to make them already think that they're not enough, that they have to continue to constantly achieve, achieve, achieve for the praise and the accolades and the external validation. And if we continue on this trajectory, then our own children will also perpetuate the cycle of not being enough. And we can end this by learning how to love ourselves and demonstrating that for our children and our friends and our family. And hopefully that will radiate out into the world and make our local communities and our immediate circles much happier places to exist. Whenever someone doesn't love themselves, you can tell. And nothing you can do, speaking from personal experience as someone who hated herself, nothing you can do can make them love themselves. So I ask that you sit with yourself and and truly say, do I love myself and am I enough? And if there's a voice of doubt, a tiny little whisper, or if it's a loud scream, then start to ask and inquire about, inquire and ask that part. What does it need to feel like enough? If you want a resource, my personal favorite is Tara Brock's Rain Meditation, T-A-R-A-B-R-A-C-H, capital R, capital A, capital I, capital N, and you can find it for free on YouTube. Her meditation has been just essential in my healing and my self-discovery, so I highly recommend it. Anyways, okay, I'm signing off. But with that, have a good fucking day, everybody. And I love you.